I'm Eileen Don, and this is The God Slot. Well, that's a change from our usual opening music, and I'll explain why in just a moment. The big news this week in the world of Roman Catholicism was the publication on Tuesday of the first apostolic exhortation from Pope Francis, the joy of the gospel, which is being hailed as his mission statement for the governance of the Universal Church, and we'll be looking at that in more depth next week. Meanwhile, in Nepal, researchers think they've found the oldest Buddhist shrine in the world at the Lumbini Pilgrimage Centre, dating back to 550 BC, a revelation that could push the accepted birth date of the Buddha back by a century. Here at home last Friday, we learned of the death of Redemptorist priest and one of the main architects of the Northern Ireland peace process, Father Alec Reid. Father Reid was buried in Belfast on Wednesday. Er Gareva Onam Usel. And on the 12th of November, that great composer of liturgical music, John Taverner, lost his battle with ill health, dying peacefully at his home in Dorset. That accounts for the change in our opening music, which is taken from one of his most famous pieces, The Protecting Veil. To discuss him and his work, we're joined in studio by one of the foremost experts on liturgical music in this country, Father Michael Collins. Father Michael, you're very welcome to the Godslot. Thank you very much. Born in 1944 in London, Taverner first came to the attention of the musical world in 1968 with his dramatic cantata, The Whale, which, of course, based on the story of Jonah and the whale. So tell us a bit about him and his early music and how he broke in. Well, Taverner was one of the, I suppose, iconic composers of the last century of this century gone out and spanning into our present century. And iconic is probably a good word to use because... He's very well known for his orthodox music because he converted to the orthodox Christian faith in 1977. His first work, as you mentioned, The Whale, it was an oratorio based on the story of Jonah and the whale, an Old Testament fable which Jesus refers to uh, as a symbol of his resurrection. And if you look at early Christian art, you'll often find an image of Jonah resting under a pergola and then this enormous big whale, which is obviously the the result of the fantasy of the artist. It wasn't really very well received uh, at his first performance and it only, in fact, probably managed to struggle on a little bit further because his brother was, I think, an electrician or a carpenter working in the home of one of the Beatles and uh, he was talking about his brother with great pride and saying, oh, my brother's a composer, etc. And they took an interest in it and they actually recorded it. And then they kind of launched him into this career of recording because, remember, a lot of composers are lucky if they just get one piece performed in their lifetime. And when he converted to Orthodox Christianity in 1977, he was fascinated by the whole use of language and imagery in the Christian tradition And he loved the play and words. Uh, There's a lovely poem which is sung uh, during one of the evening prayers to Mary. uh, Hail, O blessed virgin, virgin who gave birth. Hail, O unmarried bride, married to God. You know, all this type of stuff was very attractive to him. 
And he decided to set many pieces to music. One of his most famous, I think, but probably least performed, is the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which would be the principal Eucharistic setting in the Orthodox Church. Well, now, the piece we played at the opening was another famous piece, one of his rare compositions that doesn't feature the human voice, the protecting veil. But that comes from a Greek icon as well. Yes, exactly. He was very much taken, as within the Greek Orthodox tradition, by the icons, by the images, And the concept within the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox Church is that the icons are images, if you like, almost like windows into heaven. And that's why he he refers to it as the protecting veil. And I remember a few years ago being in Thessalonica uh, on an archaeological expedition and we went into a a local Orthodox church and it was just simply for evening prayers. I was fascinated by it the amount of young people who went in and out of the church and they simply would go in one door, kiss an icon or two or three or four and walk out. And I remember saying to one of the priests there, you know, what is that? And he said, oh, well, that's what we do. You know, the way you kiss your photographs at home of your relatives and of your friends. Well, we do this when we kiss our saints because they're still our relatives and our friends. The thing is that we can't touch them. So we have to kiss through the protecting veil. So that was the concept. And he's quoted as saying, I hope my music resembles icons in sound. Yes, he he referred to it as well. And I I think there's also a lovely image uh, that Philip Glass, the composer, used uh, as a tribute to him when he died. He said that uh, Tavner's music was a perfume in sound. So again, it's taking up this lovely imagery of the mysticism, which has been very much lost within the Western tradition. Because remember, until the 11th century, Orthodox and and main Christianity were all one. So he was going back. And again, I mentioned that he learned Greek because he loved the Greek language, but also the Greek way of thought. And again, one of the things that we often forget is that in the Bible and then in our liturgy as well, we use so much of the Greek thought. Uh, Sometimes we see the Bible as simply a Jewish document and we forget the underlying sophistication, the cultural cultural baggage, if you like, which the later fathers and mothers of the church writing in the second, third and fourth century, in particular in in Greece and later on in Egypt, were bringing forward, you know, this lovely mystical idea Um, the concepts of a hidden God who speaks in silence. And, you know, all of this was very attractive to somebody who'd been based on the reformed tradition of the word, the word, the word, and what the word means, etc. And that's why he was very attracted to providing liturgical settings which allowed the words spread over uh, maybe one syllable with scores of notes tumbling out of it. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to unpack this idea of the silence of the word. He became somewhat stereotyped, though, in latter years, and he rejected that too. Yes, he he, he was actually, I think, a little bit disappointed that so often he was seen as John Tafner, the man who writes orthodox music for an English audience. And if you look at composers nowadays, they have to use a variety of sources and instrumentation which wasn't available to them even a few years ago. And I often think about musicians and composers as they listen to the radio each day, they're listening to music from all over the world. He was very interested in that as well. He was asked, in fact, in an interview recently, and he gave very, very, very few interviews, had he left Orthodox Christianity? And he said, no, no, uh, Christianity remains at the heart of what he does, but it's so rich that it allows him explores other spheres of the spiritual. 
And he was still working right up to the end and plans were afoot to celebrate his 70th birthday next year. Absolutely. He was working very hard for his birthday because in the last three years he's had actually very, very bad health. And in the last year he'd made a little bit of progress. So uh, plans are afoot and I'm sure they'll go ahead posthumously to commemorate him, commemorate his life, his contribution to contemporary music. And next year certainly will be a year to mark. Now, we've talked about the influences on him, but talk to me about his influence on other musicians. I think uh, Tavner's music is music which is appreci- uh, can be appreciated by absolutely everybody. And in fact, a friend of mine who's a musical student, uh, a, a graduate from Duquesne University who's visiting Ireland, and we were talking about Tavner's funeral yesterday, he was saying, you know, there's somebody who had such a huge influence on me in my life. I think, unfortunately, as perhaps with Seamus Heaney, we underestimated him until he died. And I think probably the same will be said with Tavner, because I'm certain that his music will be played on into generations to come. Well, one piece that made a big mark was the song for Athen, which was performed at the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales. It was written for a Greek friend too, who had died in a cycling accident. That's right. And uh, he was invited to compose something for the funeral of the princess who died in 1997. But there really wasn't time because composition takes months really to to work out. So he adapted this song and I remember watching it, in fact, in 1997. And the piece of music that leapt out at me was that last piece. And I remember as the the guard marched up in their scarlet uniforms, uh, the music just started with with this lovely growling alleluia. It was just such a marvellous piece of music, so ethereal, which we'll probably hear as we conclude our our piece today. We will indeed. Father Michael Collins, thank you. In modern Ireland, we have many people seeking asylum because of religious persecution in their native countries. But this is not a new phenomenon. At the end of the 17th century, Louis XIV of France revoked the Edict of Nantes, in which the Calvinists, also known as Huguenots, were granted substantial rights by his grandfather, King Henry IV. Fearing persecution by the new Catholic regime, they fled France and settled here in areas like Cork, Dublin and Waterford. They became known for their expertise in textiles and over time were thoroughly absorbed into Irish society. Mairead Mead took a walk with Councillor Kieran McCarthy around the Huguenot Quarter, as it's known, in Cork City to find out more. In 1685, uh, Cork, it was, it was a walled town. We're actually standing here kind of on Castle Street, which is kind of the, uh, the site of the old port. Uh, and the, the port here actually was controlled by two towers, um, King's Castle and Queen's Castle. Uh, and of course, King's Castle and Queen's Castle is symbolised in the, in the city's kind of coat of arms. So that's important. I mean, Huguenots were arriving into a port, which is the part of the second largest natural harbour in the world. Um, they had massive kind of natural resources um, at hand. Uh, and certainly in time, um, they kind of very much diversified, diversified into things like the sailcloth industry um, and set up factories in Douglas, which we'll talk about. Um, but certainly they also arrived into a time of change, for, of physical change for the walled town of Cork. Um, 
there was a siege of Cork in 1690 where supporters of King James II, uh, the Catholic king who was kind of on the run in Ireland, exiled into Ireland, um, and he fought many, many battles against King William of Orange um, right across Ireland. There was a big siege of Cork in 1690 where William White supporters uh, took over the walled town, and the, the siege lasted four days, uh, and the William White army planted cannons uh, on the northern hills of the city uh, and the southern hills of the city, uh, and basically they bombarded the town. And so from September of 1690 onwards, it was all about rebuilding on the on the corporation's kind of agenda. Uh, and the Huguenots, um, because they were they were kind of just arriving in, and they had vision, they had determination, um, and they began to develop, especially on a marsh uh, called the Northeast Marsh, um, which now kind of Paul Street actually runs through. At that time, Cork was exporting 100,000 barrels of butter, 60,000 barrels of beef. Um, Cork was exporting. Um, a major export share of, of beef. We were we were slaughtering ninety thousand kind of cattle per annum. There was a lot of kind of um, uh, ships that needed needed tendering. Uh, certainly, with the creation of the sailcloth factory in Douglas in seventeen twenties uh, by two individuals, Mr. Perry and Mr. Carlton, um, they created. Uh, I suppose a sailcloth factory, which in time was providing most of the sails for boats in the south of Ireland that needed sails. Um, so it was, it was quite a substantial operation. I, I think what impresses me about them is, is, their, is their ambition um, and their vision uh, to, to drive the city forward in particular. And I think the, the Huguenots plus actually the Quakers um, were two important groups to drive the city forward post the siege of Cork in 1690. I believe they set up a church here. Um, they, did, they did. Do you want to walk down to the yeah, church? Yeah, we'll do that. When they came in here, uh, 16, kind of 85 onwards, I mean, many of them actually were welcome for their skills um, and were regarded actually as kind of as loyal to the kind of the British crown at the time. of um, cause it, was, it was a time of unrest when, kind of James, when James II was in Ireland. Um, and there were special kind of privileges encouraged their settlement. And in Cork City, they actually became important uh, council members. Um, they became mayors um, and sub-established themselves in business and manufacturing industries. Um, and others actually became renowned kind of goldsmiths and silversmiths. Several served as mayors of Cork. Um, and just kind of maybe to give you a sense of the names as well. Um, Besnard, Pick, Lavitt, Perrier, Godzell, Quarry, Hardy, Mallet. Um, uh, Perdrian and Delacour um, and some of these names actually have survived the test of time when you look up the phone book in Cork um, you'll see these names as well and can you tell me a little bit about um, the church itself um, yeah I mean when they arrived here first they were kind of um, initially worshipping in kind of temporary locations um, but then by about 1712 um, members actually built their own church um, on Lumley Street which, was, uh, which is now French Church Street and then actually in 1733 they acquired an adjoining um, Ams House uh, which they removed in time and they actually used the area as the burial ground so this is actually what we're looking at at the moment um, and there's, like, there is a headstone in here 1773 uh, and there's lovely interpretive panels as well that give you a sense of the time there's a, there's a lovely map uh, by John Rock uh, in 1759 which kind of shows the, uh, the French church itself um, so they I suppose for about, for about 100 years they actually, I, the, the Huguenots worshipped in French at the church on this side here. Um, and at first um, Calvinist uh, or non-conformist services were held. Uh, and then by the, the 1740s uh, they conformed to the established church, Anglican at the time. Um, 
but by actually by the early 19th century, most of the Huguenots actually no longer needed uh, French language services. Um, so the Huguenot worship here at French Church Street ceased about um, 1813, uh, and the site then was used by the uh, the Wesleyan uh, Methodist uh, worship for most of the 19th century. This has got a very kind of layered history. Uh, in fact, when you kind of stand on on the street, the street has gone through a lot of changes. Um, in particular, in the 1800s. So if you come down here looking for uh, more of the Huguenots bar the graveyard, uh, you're actually not going to find them. So it's great to have this like little uh, haven of rest, I suppose, in one sense. Um, I was going to say heavenly space, uh, but certainly to, to it's great to, to mark uh, the Huguenots' kind of contribution to the city. Between 1692 uh, and 1829, the penal laws were in place, which curtailed Catholic worship. Um, so, uh, an open Catholic worship. So there wasn't an enormous amount of, we say, Catholic churches in the city, bar the North Chapel and the South Chapel, uh, which were allowed, kind of, um, where people in there could actually worship. Um, so they were they were adding to the the Protestant stock that were actually here um, very much, uh, and driving driving I, I, driving forward the agenda of uh, the Protestant political class at the time in the city. There was. 200,000 left France, and then there was actually 5,000 came to Ireland, uh, and about three, yeah, 300 settled in Cork. But they, yeah, they had an enormous influence. Um, but maybe, maybe it was the fact that they were in a foreign place. They saw the opportunity as well. They came in at a time when uh, the walls of Cork were actually t were being taken down. Um, there was a large-scale kind of reclamation in Cork uh, from 1690 onwards for for 60 years until uh, they, they, there was another program to fill in canals in Cork. Uh, but certainly where we're standing, the Northeast Marsh, uh, at one stage in the late 1600s there was an enormous kind of dock area around here to support the uh, the export trade uh, and very much the Huguenots moved into the centre of this kind of marshy island and, and developed their, their church and their graveyard. If the Huguenots wanted to build something um, because of their they, they had money and because of their religious status they kind of they generally kind of built it. Um, the corporation of Cork themselves were broke um, after the siege of Cork, uh, many of the councillors actually left, and a whole series of new names kind of uh, came on the on the council benches. Uh, so things really, really were, were changing, and the Huguenots were part of that uh, enormous change in Cork. That report by Mairead Mead. Between the 1920s and the 1950s, the Catholic Truth Society, now Veritas, published hundreds of pamphlets with advice on marriage, drinking and sin. And now, after being hidden for decades in the Veritas archives, the pamphlets, which feature bold graphics, have recently been on exhibition and many of the covers are included in a new book, Vintage Values. Avril Hoare now reports. Like dancing, it's hard to make visual images work on radio, but I'll try. In the company of Lear McCorrig from Veritas, I went to the Print Museum in Dublin to see the Vintage Values exhibition. Well, the first one is Sister Felicitas Wins a Bicycle, and uh, it's a blue cover with a picture of a nun seen from behind with her hand on her chin looking pensive while holding a brand new bicycle, which has a nice wicker basket and a little bell and everything. Um, this is one of her most popular images. Some people just don't understand why everybody loves this one so much. I think it's, it, there's a sort of air of mystery about it. You're wondering, how did Sister Felicitas win the, win the bicycle? What is she going to do with the bicycle, having won it? You know, how is the story going to pan out? The exhibition, which it's hoped will tour other parts of the country, features classic pamphlet cover design from the mid-20th century. Published by the then Catholic Truth Society, they include titles like Shall I Be a Nun? Shall My Daughter Be a Nun? Fashionable Sin? And... Dirty stories. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a real grotesque um, sort of caricature of a sort of, you can imagine that he's a sort of horrible businessman, you know, smoking a big cigar and kind of uh, guffawing away in a cloud of smoke. You know, it's, this is a really, really striking one. Um, it's funny, this pamphlet was only published once or only printed once. A lot of these pamphlets would have gone through many, many printings. This one was only printed once, so I think it must have scared a lot of people off. There are pamphlets on drinking or not, swearing, a big no-no, modesty, a good thing, and relationships. These are what to do in a date and what not to do in a date. Um, what to do in a date uh, was one of the most popular pamphlets. I think they printed 80,000 copies of that um, over 30, 40 years. Um, so it was consistently popular. And in a way, the, the advice being given was very, I suppose you could say it was timeless, but it was also very innocent. The things that you do on a date are laugh, dance, sing, uh, and it also says to continue going on dates once you're married, which is an interesting one. And what not to do on a date? Well, you can probably guess that for yourself. And if all that dating led to wedlock, there was a message about marriage. Divorce is a disease. I mean, this is from, I think, 1944. Well, I suppose it's, it, it has a sort of thunderous sound to it. Um, again, I think there was an idea that if they made the title very bold and the visuals very impactful, maybe people would, would pick this up and read why are we being told divorce is a disease and you know what relevance could that have to me and in, in these times so nowadays you wouldn't get divorce as a disease you know it would be a completely different approach the new apologetics i think they're called um but but in those times i think that's probably what worked when people are used to seeing cinema posters and uh, advertising was all very bold and brash i think this is was the kind of thing that would really reach that audience at that time and the graphics are great the style is glamorous, very American, very madmen, and all done by Irish artists who obviously knew how to make a statement and appreciated by the people I met at the exhibition. That's absolutely fantastic. It really is. I think it's just such a just such a wide range of just amazing <laughs> amazingness really. We were just been going around giggling to ourselves, but just the illustration particularly and the the imagery. Then and then when you read the headings and then you, you see the Dublin Catholic Truth Society of Ireland at the bottom, which just seems to totally jar with some of the imagery and the headings, but just they're brilliant. I just think it's beautiful um, and I just think they're quite modern, which is amazing to look. It's always interesting to see the date and the year. A point echoed by Lear. You think of Ireland at that time and you're thinking shamrocks and harps and um, the sort of end days of the, the, the Celtic revival and that type of thing. Whereas, in fact, what we're seeing here is very international, very American, and really speaking with a modern voice. Um, and the, possibly the last people in the world you would have expected to be the supporters of this were the Catholic Truth Society of the time. But while we can look at these pamphlets with an ironic eye, smiling at titles like Grow Up and Marry and The Girl Who Wasn't Plain, it's easy to forget just how conservative Ireland was at that time and how powerful the Catholic Church was in getting its message of right and wrong out there. I find it hard to believe, for example, that a person who views the grandeurs of the heavens or the wonders of this marvellous, mysterious world in which the good God has placed us will not find more pleasure in that than in viewing, for example, some squalid domest uh, domestic uh, brawl or a street quarrel. 
That was President de Valera launching Telefish Erin at the end of 1961. In an Ireland of wariness, censorship, suspicion, books banned, communism and liberalism seen as enemies and where the Bishop and the Knighty caused a storm on the Late Late Show. But you could certainly argue that the pamphlets, long hidden in the Veritas archives, are also part of social history and a reminder of perhaps a different Ireland. The Ireland of the time, for somebody like me who can just about remember the Pope's visit in 79, you know, looking at this, it's like Ireland on another planet. It's something completely unknown to me, my personal experience. Um, so, I mean, it was really great to get this living snapshot of the way Ireland was uh, back in those times. Avril Ho reporting and that's our programme for this week on Sunday night at half past ten on RTE1 television in the moment of truth Blonadny Kofig will be talking to Valerie Faraher whose undiagnosed postnatal depression led to nearly catastrophic alcoholism until she finally got help. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. Our phone number is 01208 The postal address is The Godslot, RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. As we said at the beginning, next week we'll be looking at the Pope's apostolic exhortation. Gudishin, kukudijishif. Because I gotta have faith. Mm, I gotta have faith. Because I gotta have faith.